0: Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you would open to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the uh, definitive chapter on resurrection in the New Testament. Uh, The Bible is a hologram in the sense that you can't ever remove any of it without damaging the whole, so there's some Uh, resilience built into that, but Paul writes an enormous amount of the resurrection in this chapter, and it is pure arrogance to think that we're going to get through this in 45 minutes. So pray, because we're going to be rolling, as we say. And by the way, the real activity of this class occurs on Tuesday nights. That prayer meeting is where battle takes place, and that's where victories are won. So... Please keep, if you can't go, please pray for the prayer warriors that are there because it's a small group, but it's a mighty group, and they are interceding for you uh, and I every Tuesday. So Paul has written the letter of Corinthians about 55 AD. As you know, the church in Corinth was a church gone wrong. It was a church in trouble. Paul writes them a letter, 16 chapters all in. The first six chapters are really written to correct their their disunity, their moral disorders, their divisions, and then chapter seven through 16 were let, let, commentary by Paul in response to specific questions that the Corinthian church had asked him at that point in time. And the issue that really led to the writing of chapter 15 is found in verse 12. So if you go to chapter 15, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians, this is the genesis of this particular chapter, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So there were some in the Corinthian church who were having trouble buying, and some of them were outright denying the resurrection from the dead, and that's what generated this particular chapter. The central mystery of life on earth is what happens when this life ends in death. Everyone dies, it is appointed for a man to die once, and then what? That is the central question of this few decades we have on life. There is no authoritative knowledge about life after death that can be discovered by human reason or human discovery or reporting. Life after death is only authoritatively disclosed by divine revelation. All human thinking about what follows death is speculation. The reality is the only person who was dead for three days came back to life And comprehensively and authoritatively told us what was on the other side is Jesus Christ. The author of the Bible is the creator of the universe, and therefore his word alone is authoritative and trustworthy. Now, I might as well say this. This is off script, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's a lot of books that have been written about people coming back from the dead. I'm not discounting their experience, that is not authoritative. You do not develop a doctrine of life after death based on a human fallible report from the other side. I'm not discounting it, I'm not saying it's not true, but it must be judged by scripture. Amen? Amen? Some of you are looking at me like a deer in the headlights. You evaluate all human experience based on what the Bible says. So when comes, someone comes and says, I died, number one, they didn't die. If they were dead, dead, they wouldn't come back. They might have been in the state where the doctor said, you've got no heart rate, you've got no brain wave. But if you came back, you're not dead. If you're dead, dead, you're not coming back. Right? It's appointed for man to die how many times? Once. Once. So I'm not discounting these books. Some of them are very, very interesting. But please judge them by Scripture, by the authority of Scripture. So I'm getting back on script now. Some in the Corinthian church were denying that the resurrection had taken place because they did not believe that human beings could physically be raised from the dead and they were being influenced by the culture of their day. The Greco-Roman culture of that day essentially believed in dualism. The body was evil, all physical was evil, the spirit was good and so the body was a prison that kept the spirit entombed, so to speak, kept it captive. So death was the releasing of the spirit to freedom and the body in the ground. Everything physical was evil, and so a resurrected body was abhorrent to the Greeks. When you talked about a resurrected body, the body was evil, and therefore a resurrected body was doubly evil, so they rejected that. The Epicurean philosophers in Greek culture believed in materialism and only materialism. What that means is that the spiritual realm does not exist. The only reality is the things that you can measure with your five senses. Right? And that's material. The material world, the physical world, is the only thing that was real. And of course, the modern evolutionary model is absolutely based on materialism. The spiritual world doesn't exist. Only what you can measure with your five senses. The Epicureans were also nihilists. What that means is they believed that death ended human existence. There's no immortality of the soul. There's no life beyond the grave. When you're dead, you're dead. You push up daisies and that's all she wrote. That's the Epicureans. So therefore, eat, drink, be merry today was their philosophy. The Stoics believe that after you died, your soul merged with God at death and the individual kind of became part of a large collective. That kind of thinking is really embodied in Hinduism and Buddhism today. That large loss of the individual and merging into some sort of collective is very much an Eastern orientation today. Plato and the followers of Plato back in that day believed in an immortal soul, but they denied the body could ever experience resurrection. Now, the word resurrection is the Greek word anastasis, a n a s t a s i s, anastasis, which literally means to stand up again, to stand up again. So when you go to our cemeteries, they, most folks are buried facing east. Is that east? Where is East all right behind me face that you're facing east so when christ comes you will stand up again and face east the notion being that that's where he's coming from so physical resurrection implies and embodies a body there is no resurrection without a body okay it's not the immortality of the soul It's the resurrection, the life again, the standing up again of the body that's inherent in that. So resurrection means that you will live again in a body, not just in a spirit. And in this chapter, Paul's going to answer four questions. Four questions in 58 verses. Number one, are the dead raised? Question number one, are the dead raised? First 19 verses answer that question. Number two, when are the dead raised? That's 20 to 28. Number three, why are the dead raised? 29 to 34 in the last 11 verses. And then four, how are the dead raised? We're going to try and do this in about 40 minutes. So hang on. Paul demonstrates the reality of the resurrection, number one, by reviewing the evidence for Christ's resurrection. And here's the first principle. The reality of Christ's past resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. The reality of Christ's past resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. Verse one, now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is saying the first evidence for the resurrection is the Christian themselves. The Corinthian Christians had heard the gospel believed it, had their lives changed by it, dramatically changed by it. And that gospel embedded in that is the resurrection. By the way, changed lives are proof positive that the resurrection is real because dead prophets don't change anybody's life. You are here because Jesus Christ is alive. Hundreds of millions of people through 2000 years of history are here and in heaven and have endured persecution and suffering and all sorts of troubles, not for a lie, but for the reality that Jesus Christ is alive. We wouldn't be here if that were the case. So your life, your changed life is proof number one, that the resurrection is real. Number two, Paul demonstrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ had been predicted by Old Testament prophecies for years, decades, generations. Verse three. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures underline these verses. This is the heart of the gospel, right here. In two verses, this is a summary description of the core of the gospel, the literal, physical, historical death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. We could spend days going through the Old Testament references that refer to Christ's future death, burial, and resurrection. Here's why that's important. Only the infinite personal creator God who lives outside space, time, matter, energy, can predict a supernatural event centuries in the future and then make it happen on schedule. One of the ways God authenticates his word as being supernatural is he predicts things and then makes them happen centuries into the future. Humans can't do that. That requires supernatural. So the prediction of Christ's death, burial and resurrection and then it's fulfillment is proof positive, another one that the resurrection is a reality. Third proof are the multiple witnesses who saw and interacted with Jesus over a 40 day period following his resurrection. Beginning in verse five, Paul is gonna make a partial list. This is not not exhaustive. You can go to the other scriptures and you'll find more people, but Paul just lists these, verse five. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, 12, 12 apostles, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, probably just before his ascension, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's the brother of, half-brother of Christ, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul's talking about himself. Paul Paul is demonstrating the historical reliability of the resurrection by means of eyewitnesses. Human history, all of human history is ultimately explained by the records that people have left behind. None of us were there, so we rely on the records of eyewitnesses who were there and left reports, whether it happens to be written reports, uh, art reports inside of caves, whether it happens to be Stonehenge, where you can look at the physical structures, but the historical records are the only evidence we have that something happened or didn't happen. Even today, when you go to a court of law, what do they do? They establish the veracity of a case based on what? Eyewitnesses. Does anybody see this particular alleged crime occur that we can uh, put in the eyewitness category for testimony? Now, Paul says, many of these eyewitnesses are still alive. You can check with them. It's been 23 years since the resurrection. It's now 55, 23, 24. And Paul says some of these are asleep, but some of them are still here. You can talk to some of these 500 who were talked to him, interacted with him. They can document the fact that that resurrection was a historical reality. So some in the Corinthian church believe that Christ rose from the dead. No problem. Jesus can rise from the dead, but they didn't believe ordinary human beings could rise from the dead. Paul's gonna demonstrate now the consequences of rejecting belief in the resurrection of the body. Verse 12, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says, how can you believe that Christ rose bodily from the dead and also believe that the resurrection of the body is impossible? He says, that's, that's logically incongruous. It doesn't make sense. If Christ bodily rose from the dead, then the physical resurrection of the body is obviously possible, right? Christ was fully human. Christ had a physical body. If Christ could not rise from the dead, then he did not conquer sin and death. And those who have already died are separated from God, eternity, and hell. He's basically saying, if you deny the resurrection, your sins are not forgiven. You are not free from the law of sin and death. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then the Christian message is a lie. We who bring the message are liars and you are delusional if you have hope for the future because there is no hope in the future. He's basically saying the resurrection is the central message of the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection. All three required. By the way, the reason he puts burial in there is that three days you're dead. Demonstrably dead, right? However... The reality of Christ's resurrection verifies the truth of the gospel. So Paul says, look, we're gonna document number one, resurrection is possible. Christ's resurrection is a historical verifiable reality. Number two, when are the dead raised? There is more than one resurrection. There is no general resurrection where everybody rises at the same time. There's multiple resurrections in God's sequence. Verse 20, skip to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep, but each in his own order, underline the word order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ said is coming. Firstfruits is an Old Testament sacrificial uh, offering in the Jewish Hebrew calendar where when the first fruits ripen, your crop is coming in, the very first part of that crop that ripens, the worshiper brought that crop to the priest. And the priest would wave that offering before the Lord as an indication that the entire crop yet to come belonged to the Lord. So today, if you've got vegetables or a fruit tree or whatever, the very first fruit that ripens, you brought it to the Lord. And it was, number one, it was an offering of thanksgiving, but it also indicated that more fruit was to follow. So the first fruits offering was evidence the more fruit was to follow. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is evidence that more resurrections are going to follow. There's gonna be future resurrections for those who follow him. So the word order here, interesting word, it's a military term and it has to do with ranks of soldiers. Ranks of soldiers in a hierarchy in a sequence. So God has a definite sequence for resurrection. The first to experience resurrection was who? Jesus Christ, right? Following that, Christians will experience resurrection when Christ comes for his saints at the rapture. Pastor Roger talked about that this morning. I didn't know he was going there, but boy, was that helpful. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18. Probably one of the definitive sections on the rapture. And I'm just going to give you two verses. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, the believing dead. Number two. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now in John 5:29, Jesus called this, The resurrection of life. The resurrection of life. So when the rapture comes, the Lord will come not to the earth, to the air. You will be caught up. Jesus does not come to earth during the rapture. You are caught up from the earth and you will meet him in the air and you will go to be with the Lord. Verse 24. Then comes the end. And we're going to discuss that. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So the end is not the rapture. The end is the end of the physical universe. The end is the end of this present age. And that end will not come until after Christ's millennial reign on earth. thousand years. At the end of millennia, at the end of the millennium, Revelation 20 tells us that Christ will defeat anybody who rejects and rebels against his rule. After that revelation, the last part of Revelation 20 says Christ will come in judgment and then the lost will be raised. So understand, there's at least two resurrections here. One, if you're in Christ and you are dead at the rapture, you're the first to be raised. When Christ comes in the rapture, if you're still alive, you're going up without dying, right? That, you meet the Lord in the air. After the tribulation period, seven-year period of time, after Christ defeats all his enemies, then we have the resurrection of the lost, Those who have rejected Christ, those who are dead or alive who have rejected Christ will experience resurrection. They will stand before God at the great white throne judgment. That's Revelation 20. They will be judged according to their deeds. Then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And following that, it says death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. So number one, every human being will experience resurrection. Every human being will experience resurrection. The question is not, will you live forever? You will live forever. Everyone lives forever. The question is, where will you live forever? Those who have accepted Jesus' payment for their sins will live forever with Jesus in heaven. Those who have rejected Jesus' payment for their sins will pay for their own sins themselves. They will live forever separated from God in a place called the lake of fire. So the dead are raised in a specific order. We understand that. Third question, why are the dead raised? Why are the dead raised? Why does it matter? Why does it matter today? Paul says there's at least three areas of your life that are impacted today by your future resurrection. Here's the principle. The certainty of future resurrection should motivate us to live pure lives and share the gospel. The certainty of future resurrection should motivate us to live pure lives and share the gospel. Now, the first thing the resurrection impacts is evangelism. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? This verse has gotten more foolish interpretations than almost anyone in recent memory. Paul is not teaching proxy baptism. Paul is not teaching vicarious baptism. He's not teaching you can baptize a living person in place of somebody who's already died. Not teaching that. Baptism does not save. Each person has to make their own decision to follow Jesus or not. The statement really means baptized to take the place of those who've already died. In other words, what Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, why bother with evangelism? If there's no resurrection, why are you bothering with missions? What's the point? It's a waste of time. There's no life after death anyway, so why go to all the trouble to tell people about Jesus and how to go to heaven? If there's no life after death, there's certainly no heaven, no hell, no judgment. So why are you worried about evangelism? If all you do is push up daisies when you die, and you turn into ashes to ashes and dust to dust, and that's all there is then salvation's meaningless, right? Because there's no life after death. Paul says, hold it. Resurrection is a reality. Everyone does live forever. They have a choice about where to live. We have a motivation to tell people how they can go to heaven. So resurrection impacts evangelism. Number two, resurrection impacts our view of suffering. Verse 30. Paul says to these Corinthians, why are we in danger every hour? Why am I being persecuted? He talks about fighting wild beasts at Ephesus who wanted to kill him. Verse 32. If the dead are not raised, what does he say we ought to do? Eat, drink, and be merry. merry. Tomorrow we die. Party now. That's kind of our culture, isn't it? Pretty much. I'll deal with death tomorrow. I'll deal with it later. Well, someday later we'll be here and you're going to have to deal with it. So, Paul says if resurrection's not real, if there is no life after death, why would anyone endure suffering for the gospel? Why would I be willing to be persecuted, Paul says, for the sake of the gospel if there's no resurrection? Why have Christians been willing to endure suffering and struggle and persecution and death for 2,000 years if, in fact, resurrection's delusional? Right? There's no life after death. How come Satan opposes the gospel so viciously? That's interesting. If, in fact, there was no resurrection, you would think Satan could care. Ah, they're going to die and go on the ground. Why would I do spiritual warfare if there's no life after death? The fact that every soul will live forever tells you exactly why Satan goes to war. Okay? Proof positive. Thirdly, resurrection is a call to stop sinning. Verse 34. In light of the resurrection, Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought. and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. Of course, they need knowledge of God through evangelism. So the truth is everyone's gonna be resurrected. Everyone's gonna stand before God for judgment. Since God is gonna hold us accountable for everything we do in this life, we should sober up and clean up, right? Live a life that reflects the reality that each one of us will stand before God. And I've listened to a lot of theology from people who say, well, my sins are forgiven at the cross. You're absolutely correct. None of you and I who are Christians will experience the judgment of God. But we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. Your sins are paid for by the blood of the Lamb. I'm not talking about you can't do anything to earn salvation. You can't do anything to lose salvation once you're saved. But he said you should be motivated to live a pure life in light of the fact that Jesus will evaluate your life at death, 1 Corinthians 3, for rewards. And if you love Jesus, what's your mission? To please him, right? I expect most of you love your spouse, at least sometimes. When you do love them, they know it because you behave nicely toward them. What a shock, right? You want to please who you love. Well... If you love Jesus, then Paul says it's pretty logical. Stop sinning and start living a clean life because what you do in this life matters forever in the next life. Now Paul's going to answer the question that probably has the most mystery. How are the dead raised? Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? Two questions here. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Here's the principle. Every Christian will be given a spiritual body that is eternal, powerful, and glorious. Every Christian, boy, we do need an upgrade, amen. Every Christian will be given a spiritual body that is eternal, powerful, and glorious. See, now the Greek culture not only was fearful of death, they really rejected the resurrection in all its form because they viewed resurrection as reconstruction. That's not what Paul's talking about, but the Greeks viewed resurrection as reconstruction. And they thought it was impossible that God could reassemble a decayed body. Well, it makes sense. You know, a a buried body does what? Turns back into soil, yes? And that soil feeds plants, and people eat those plants. And that's true. I know you're looking at me. That's reality, right? There was, um, Roger, Roger, Roger. He was um, a pilgrim. He died. They buried him. And a couple generations later, they found out that an apple tree had put its roots all the way through his coffin. Multiple places. So the reality is, people are eating those apples. We're eating part of Roger. I can't remember his last name. Anyway, That's just true. I mean, that's reality. That's the physical nature of it. So the Greeks are saying... Yeah, yeah. The the Greeks are saying... um, we don't understand how God's gonna be able to reassemble that. I mean, those atoms kind of recycle through people and plants and people and plants and people are buried or sea, people are burned at cremation, people are eaten by wild animals. How's God how's gonna find all the body parts to bolt it back together again? So they were looking at this reconstruction, reassembly argument. And they didn't see how God was gonna be able to do it. Paul, of course, is pretty impatient with that because he says in verse 36, what? You fool, pretty strong. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So Paul's going to use a metaphor, the life cycle of plants. And we live in a farming community. We should understand this. For a seed to produce new life, what do you have to do with the seed? You have to bury it. We bury your body. He's using seed and your body as correspondence. Seeds that are planted in the ground do not come out of the ground in the same form that you put them in the ground, right? You take a little seed... Remember, I was a kid, we used to plant carrot seeds. Have you ever seen a carrot seed? They're almost microscopic. You know, you put them in the ground, etc. You don't see that little microscopic carrot seed come out of the ground. You see the life of the carrot come out of the ground in a vastly different form. Paul says, when your old body goes into the ground, that old body ain't coming out. That body is gone forever. Jesus is not going to reassemble your existing body. Now that would be supernatural, right? <laughs> when you bury a simple, naked seed, it produces an entire plant, and that plant is far more beautiful. One of the ugliest seeds in the world is a tulip bulb, and one of the most beautiful plants in the world is the tulip flower. It's still a tulip. When you plant corn, you get corn, you plant wheat, you get wheat, etc. Our resurrection body, when we're planted, will be raised and it will still be us. But it won't be the same earthly body any more than a carrot seed's coming out of the ground because a carrot plant's coming out of the ground. So just like the seed, your new body's going to have continuity and it'll have identification, it'll have personality, it'll just be transformed because it'll be free from sin. So people will recognize you in heaven. You will be very recognizable in heaven. We will have our personalities in heaven. We will have our character traits. We'll be sin-free. So some of you are really going to be changed. People will go, is that really you? You're so nice. What happened? I resurrected. How about you? I'm surprised you're here. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of people that are surprised that Brad Ennick's there. Believe me, they're going to be surprised. And we'll all say the same thing. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus, right? So people will recognize you in heaven in the same way that Jesus' disciples recognized him when he got his new body. Now, they had some struggles because his body was changed. We're going to get into that, but they did recognize him. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. So Paul's going to talk about God's creative capacity and his ability to give you a body that's appropriate. So he says, look, even on earth, there's a wide variety of bodies and God creates bodies. He designs bodies for the species according to the environment they're going to be in. Birds have feathers, which is really useful if you want to fly as opposed to scales, which is really useful if you're gonna swim. I mean, you don't wanna get that mixed up. Life could get interesting, right? Beasts have fur, and the human skin is almost hairless. As we age, it gets even more hairless, right? Yeah, I know. So God designed our earthly bodies right now, custom designed them for the environment within which we are living now, and he will design your heavenly body for the environment in which it will live. Paul says, remember, the body is designed for the environment. You have a new environment. You're going to have a different kind of body. Now he's going to talk. He's, he's using these correspondences. He talks about seeds. He talks about flesh. Now he's going to talk about heavenly bodies, planets, stars, comets, etc. Verse 40. He says, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory for the sun, another glory for the moon, another glory for the stars. For stars differ to star in glory. So what he's saying is each star has its own brightness. Each star has its own uniqueness. There are no two stars that are identical. There are no, that's a statement of faith. I do not know that. But given the creative nature of our God and given the fact that there are no two human beings with identical DNA, I gotta believe that there are no two stars that are precisely identical. We have a God who is infinitely creative. Paul says if God can make billions of galaxies, all of which are unique, all of which have their own glory, their own brightness, their own gravitational pull, their own, you can go through the criteria. God doesn't make stars uniform, He doesn't make people uniform, He loves variety, and your heavenly body will reflect that glory. Right? Hang with me. Paul's now going to give us four contrasts between our present bodies and our future bodies. And just to cue this section up, I've asked Rob to play an old favorite tune written in 1954 by Stuart Hamlin called This Old House. This old house is the body. That's some perspective, isn't it? I know. There's a lot of deferred maintenance in this room. The good news is we're going to get an upgrade. The bad news is we desperately need it. Well, I would be surprised. This place is passing away, right? We know that. I have always interesting conversations with people that don't want to talk about death, and yet it's the most real thing that you should think about every day. Not in a negative sense, but it defines the reality of where you live and how you live. Verse 42, Paul's going to give us some contrast. Four contrasts. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Now our present body will perish. Our present body is perishing. Our earthly body has aches and pains, it sweats, it smells, it deteriorates, it decays. Every day you're dying a little more. Our current body requires constant medical attention. As a matter of fact, one proof of that is that most of your social life occurs in the waiting rooms of medical treatment facilities. It's called your doctor's office, right? You meet a lot of people there. They're really nice people, but when you look at him, you go, I hope I don't look as bad as you do, right? So the law of sin and death is working in our bodies every day. Just look in the mirror. We all have a date with death, and our spirits at that point in time will be separated from our bodies. So at that stage, our earthly bodies go where? They plant them, right? They bury them in the ground. Those who belong to Christ will instantly go to heaven, right? To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Dwight Moody, he wrote down before his funeral, he said, someday you're going to read that Dwight L. Moody is dead. He said, don't you believe it? At that time, I will be more alive than I've ever been. Okay? So those who have gone on before that are with the Lord are far more alive than what we are. We just get deluded into thinking this is the real deal. Right, So, perishable, imperishable. Our resurrection body will be imperishable. It will not be subjected to decay. It won't have aches, pains, creaks, groans, or wrinkles. It will not only be healthy and beautiful, it actually will stay healthy and beautiful. In heaven, there's going to be no cosmetics, no gymnasiums, no pharmaceuticals, no surgeries, or tummy tucks. Nothing will break, nothing will sag, nothing will turn gray. Nothing will have to be fixed because everything will work. The law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, I could talk for an hour about that, will disappear when death is destroyed and sin is eliminated. Number two, our current bodies are sown in dishonor and they're gonna be raised in glory. I'm gonna be very graphic here, so some of you hold your ears. A corpse has no honor. As a matter of fact, a corpse is generally not dignified. We dress it up, we powder it up, we paint it up in the coffin, but it's just temporary. When the life leaves the body, the body decays how quickly? Very quickly. That's why we put it into the ground as soon as possible. When Solomon said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, When God pronounced the curse in Genesis, that is a picture of the consequence of sin. One of the reasons I recommend you do not avoid going to memorial services is we need to be reminded that this life is brief. We need to be reminded daily because we can get deluded into thinking we're staying here forever. We're not staying here forever. In contrast, our new resurrection body will be glorious. Our new bodies will be perfect. Our new bodies will not be subject to dishonor, decay, or death. Our new bodies will radiate light. We are made in the image of God, who is the light generator, just like our creator. The darkness of sin will have been destroyed. Adam and Eve, prior to sin, radiated light before sin and we will in heaven, we will be like Jesus Christ. It says we will, be, we will know him because we'll be like him. Number three, our current body is sown in weakness but is gonna be raised in power. Our current bodies are weak and getting weaker. They're subject to sickness. They're in need of constant repair and attention. We band-aid stuff up more and more as we go because it takes us longer to heal as we age. As we, spend, as we age, we spend more and more time doing what? Keeping the machinery in one piece. It's not getting better with all this attention. We're just trying to slow down the getting worse process, aren't we? Right? We get tired more quickly. We become unsteady. We experience increased brain fog. We get more dependent on caffeine. I woke up this morning. I didn't have a cup of coffee, but I had a handful of chocolate espresso beans. Baby, that'll get your motor running. <laughs> if you're not, I exercise six days a week, and I didn't this morning, but those espresso beans, boy, they all, they're rocking. Here's the problem. I not only like them, I now need them. Right? You get used to that stuff, right? Just saying. Our bodies have limited knowledge. Our current bodies produce waste. They harbor germs, bacteria, viruses, etc., etc., etc. Our new bodies, we'll give a little hope here, will not wear out, they will not be imperishable, they will not be weak, they will be phenomenally powerful, they will never get tired, there will be no fatigue. We will understand the mind of God as he designed it to be. Have you ever thought about the IQ Adam and Eve had before the fall? You ever thought about the IQ that Adam and Eve had? It must have been off the charts. I've read some some speculation that it could have been 1,500 to 2,000 IQ points as we typically do. It must have been wild. They probably ran marathons and never got tired. There's no fatigue in the Garden of Eden. There's no exhaustion. Here's one of the challenges we face when Paul described this. We live in a broken, sinful world. And when he describes a body that's not subject to that, we have a hard time wrapping our head around what does that look like? Because we're not part of that. Verse 44, the last contrast. Our current bodies are sown a natural body. They are raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. The natural body was designed by God to house your human soul as it lives on human planet earth. So the human body is an earth suit. Do you have an earth suit? That's custom designed by God to function in space, time, matter, energy continuum called the physical universe. Your current body is designed to live on planet earth. When you go out in outer space, you have to have a space suit because your earth suit doesn't do really well outside of earth. Your earth suit is really designed for this particular environment. Adam was made out of the dust of the earth so he could live on earth, and so are we. Paul says our coming resurrection bodies are spiritual. We won't be disembodied spirits like ghosts. Our body will have substance, but it will be a body designed to live outside the dimensions of physical space and time. It's going to be a body... Somewhat like Jesus. Remember when Jesus was resurrected? After his resurrection, he had a physical body. Yes? He ate, he drank, he walked, he talked, people touched him, people interacted with him, but his body was not limited to the physical. He could pass through walls, he could come through closed doors, he could instantly appear or disappear. So our heavenly bodies apparently will have substance, but they will not be constrained by space, time, Decay, entropy, sin. It's going to be really, really marvelous. Then Paul spends uh, verse 45 to 49. He contrasts the first Adam, where we became a living soul, with the last Adam, we became a life-giving spirit. Chapter, or verse 45 to 49. The first birth on earth produces what's natural. The second birth in Christ produces what's spiritual. You want to know where you got your spiritual nature? You got it because you were born again. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. The body you receive from Jesus is designed for spiritual life in heaven. The body you got from Adam is designed for life here on earth. But you're not going to stay here, are you? So when you leave, you're going to need another body, one that works in the new environment. Verse 50, Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the new resurrected body is required because your earthly bodies cannot survive in heaven. Your current body is barely surviving here, right? So when we get to heaven, we're going to need a resurrection body that is appropriate for that environment. And Paul says that new resurrection body is not going to evolve slowly. It's going to occur instantly. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Here's the principle. Since Christ could return at any moment, we should stay ready every moment. Since Christ could return any moment, we should stay ready every moment. Now I want to tell you something that you already know. How many of you figured out that getting ready is easier than staying ready? <laughs> getting ready, you put me in a crisis, I can get ready. Staying ready, day by day by day, staying ready, staying ready, staying ready, staying ready. being on the alert, watching all the time, Jesus could come back today. Generally for most of us, the very first thoughts upon arising are not, Jesus could come back today. We're usually thinking about where's the potty or something very basic, right? I'm just saying that's our human flesh impacting our thinking, right? You know what I'm talking about. We should stay ready every moment. And Paul says that transformation from physical to spiritual is instantaneous. The Greek word for moment is atoms, A-T-O-M-O-S, atmos, where we get atom from, right? Atom. It's an indivisible fragment of time. And the only way they could measure the fastest known, the smallest quantity of time in the ancient world was measured by what? An eye blink. That was the fastest physical thing they knew. An eye blink, twinkling of an eye, a fraction of a second. That's why Paul uses that term that this change will occur in a twinkling or a blinking of an eye. Paul is saying that at the rapture, the believing dead will be instantly resurrected right into their new bodies. At the same time, followers of Jesus who are alive will be instantly transformed into their new bodies. Right? Now, no one knows when Jesus is going to return. So we not only have to get ready, we have to stay ready. And the consequence of receiving immortal bodies is that death will have no more power over us. Verse 54. Last part of that verse says, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Based on that truth in verse 58, he gives you a verse that's worth memorizing. Therefore, my beloved brethren, in light of that fact, how does that impact you today? Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in the vein of the Lord. The last principle before Tom comes, for the Christian, death is not a dead end. Death is the doorway into eternal life. For the Christian, death is not a dead end. Death is the doorway into eternal life. My father told me that in 1989 before he died of cancer. I said, Dad, how are you doing with death? He said, it's the portal to life can't wait to get there. Those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior do not need to fear death. Not now, not never. Death occurs because of sin, but Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. Death has been conquered because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore, Christians live in the present, but we don't live for the present. Correct? We live in this world. We don't live for the world. You have no future here. This whole house ain't gonna last. I don't care how much plaster you put on the ceiling, the roof is gonna cave in some day. Our future is a glorious eternal life with Jesus Christ forever in heaven. And in light of that coming reality, in light of the certainty of resurrection, Paul says, get on with the gospel. Take the gospel to the lost because everybody experiences resurrection. Where they spend that eternal life, you have a part of being part of God's great plan of reconciling the world to himself. So let's summarize before Tom comes and reviews our requests and our praises. Number one, the reality of Christ's past resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. There is a resurrection in your future. And you know something very selfishly? I hope it's sooner than later. Once you know where you're going, the only reason you stay is because your work isn't done. But this ain't home. Number two, the certainty of resurrection should motivate us to live pure lives and share the gospel. Number three, every Christian will be given a spiritual body that is eternal, powerful, and glorious. Number four, since Christ could return any moment, we should stay ready every moment. That's where we can encourage each other. And then lastly, for the Christian, death is not a dead end. Death is the doorway into eternal life. So therefore, death should have no fear for the believer. Okay? I love you guys. Now that you know.